Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Today, we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz. She's a filmmaker best known for Kusama Infinity, a feature-length documentary about artist Yayoi Kusama that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and received international distribution. Jessica Hargrave is the producer of Assassins, a feature film directed by Ryan White about the assassination of Kim Jong-un's half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, which premiered at Sundance to rave reviews. The film explores whether the women convicted of murdering Kim Jong-nam are trained killers or simply pawns. Jessica has produced and executive produced numerous documentaries and nonfiction series, including Ask Dr. Ruth, The Keepers, Good Old Freda, and Visible Out on Television. She also co-produced The Case Against Eight, Her films have been on Netflix, Hulu, HBO, and PBS, and her work has been nominated for Emmys and shortlisted for an Academy Award. Great to have you back, Heather, and hi, Jessica. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you, you, Claire, for the introduction, and I'm excited that we get to talk to Jessica today. So, um, Jessica, when did you first hear the story that led you to make the film Assassins? Kim Jong-nam was assassinated in February 2017, and I remember reading the headlines about it. Um, I remember reading that it had happened in an airport and that there were two female assassins, and I remember thinking that was noteworthy because you don't often read that, but it was quickly lost. I, I didn't follow the story, I'll admit, and so... I just assumed what I had read, which was that these were presumably hired assassins. It did seem like an outlandish story even at that, but I didn't really realize what was underneath the surface. Until a few months later, in the spring of 2017, my partner, the director of the film, Ryan White, and I got a phone call from a journalist um, who said, you know, do you remember that headline? We both said yes. And he said, I'm working on a story uh, because there's a lot more um, there's a lot more than meets the eye. And he said, would you guys be interested in hearing more about it? So it really came to us. Uh, this journalist, his name is Doug, Bo- Doug Bach Clark. He went to the same university as Ryan. They actually didn't overlap, but that was enough of a connection. They'd met at a, um, a, an event at Duke before. And so Doug reached out to Ryan and said he was working on this story. Do we want to have a conversation? And we said, of course. And he told us um, – he speaks Bahasa Indonesia. He had lived in Indonesia for a long time. One of the assassins is Indonesian. So he had really been following her path and gone to meet with her family, learn about her backstory, um, and said he was working on the article. But he thought that the story was so compelling and undercovered in Western media that maybe we could help him bring um, the story to more light. 
Yeah, I agree. It was definitely undercovered because I also remember it being in the headlines and then it just seemed to vanish. So how yeah. soon after yeah, how soon after the murder did you make your first trip overseas to begin filming? So our first trip, you know, with the murder in February, our first trip was sometime that summer. Once we talked to Doug, the journalist, he said he was thinking about going soon to Malaysia, which is where the murder took place. Um, And we said, okay, well, we'll go too, and we'll start seeing what's there. Basically a development trip, but we always try to make our development, development trips be shooting trips as well, since that's the best way to figure out if you've got something there and start shooting it. Plus, if you're going to go all the way to Malaysia, then, you know, make the make the trip worth it and come back with some footage. So that's what we decided to do. So just a couple months after the murder and probably a couple months after the conversation with Doug, um, we had a trip together. Well, that's that's great, moving at a quick pace. And were you able to meet the women um, accused of murder on that first trip, or did that come later? That took a really long time. I will be careful to try not to spoil the ending, but um, they they were incarcerated, and there was no access to them whatsoever. So the first stop for us was really their attorneys. They both there's so there's two for those who may not be super familiar. There were two assassins. One is from Vietnam, and one is from Indonesia. Um, neither comes from affluent backgrounds. Both of them have had pretty tough lives, in fact, and so they were. Um, they were fortunate to have really, really great attorneys, two really great attorneys and their teams in Malaysia. Um, And so that's where we started is with those attorneys and their teams because they were able to access the women. They were the ones really digging into the story. um, And we thought that they would be what they turned out to be, which is um, our main characters and the people who helped us uh, peel back the layers on something that was really quite complicated in the way that this all all, all the circumstances that led to the events of the assassination. Yeah, well, you definitely did a great job making the story flow, and so it's it's clear as it's um, you know being told in the movie, but it is definitely complex. So this is a movie where archival footage, and specifically footage from airport security cameras, is critical to the movie. Did you know that that footage existed when you started to make the film, and what were your thoughts when you uh, – started to see that footage um so yeah it's a that's one of the things that's so crazy about the story is that this was an assassination in broad daylight at an airport it's so busy with people it's you know covered in cctv footage there are tons of people around her witnesses it's just a very public assassination so it's just a really surprising setting for something like that to take place Pretty soon after the assassination took place, which, by the way, was done by the two women smearing Diek nerve agent on Kim Jong-nam's face, and that's what led to his death within an hour. Um, so pretty soon after the murder took place, there was some footage that leaked um, that showed the women. It was all very, very grainy and very low quality, but you could make out at least one of the women putting her hands up. I'm doing it right now. You can't see, but putting her hands up uh, – to cover Kim Jong-nam's eyes. And so some of that footage has been, so we knew that it existed, but we didn't know, and we were very fortunate that we were able to get our hands on just disks and disks of CCTV footage, way more than was leaked. And so once we got that footage, it really turned the whole movie around because there was just so much documentation about what had gone on that day. 
you know, we were able to piece together what had led up to that day, but to have all of those moments captured on CCTV was just changed everything for us. And so we got these discs and they were just this unidentified footage. You know, we were able to recognize some of the footage that we'd seen previously um, in the leaked footage, but otherwise we had a really great associate editor named Darshan Kimbabi and he just, made a huge timeline. He just took them all together, pulled them into Avid, which is our editing platform that we use, and he spent, I don't know, a month, maybe two, just, you know, he was still helping the edit team on other projects as well, but his focus was really trying to unpack that CCTV footage. And it was just jaw-dropping moments multiple times because we would recognize, you know, we had little uh, pictures up so we could learn who the characters were. Obviously, we knew who the two women were, but there were four North Korean operatives who were surrounding the women, basically flanking them during the incident, during the assassination. And so once we were able to use the images that existed of those men that were obtained from Interpol, then we were able to find the men in that footage. And Darshan did a lot of that. He would point out and say, back here in this corner, that's the same man that we saw in the footage earlier. And what was even more interesting about it is in the middle of the day after the assassination, they changed their clothes. They, one of them shaved his beard. So then you need to find them in an entirely different look. And so we were able to trace them in and make this timeline of their day and how the women interacted with the men, how the men led them up to the, the moment of the incident, and then how the men got on planes and flew back to North Korea. It's, it's so interesting to hear you talk about it because it sounds like quite a bit of detective work. So I guess if you ever need to change careers, you have a, a resume to um, become a detective if you're interested. But I, I will say watching the film, one thing I found very interesting is the way people would read into the actions of these women as, they, as we were able to watch them uh, move through the airport. And so um, it's just it's just super interesting the way people form opinions that they assume mm-hmm. are fact um, without really mm-hmm. ne- you know they don't necessarily know what's going on. So um, yeah, I'm curious. And people can watch the footage and see different things. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, right. but people can watch oh, it and see yeah. different things, which is exactly what you're talking about. I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, it is. And how were you able to clear this footage? Because as documentary filmmakers. You know, sometimes we shoot our footage, sometimes we license it from databases that are in that business, and sometimes you rely on things like fair use. But in this case, for this kind of airport security camera, how did you go about getting the rights to use it in your movie? Um, We have a fantastic attorney who reviewed this film a million times to help us uh, in the structure in terms of obtaining a fair use argument. As those who are listening probably know, it's still a fair use argument. You know, there's never any, oh, you're 100% able to use this. It is an argument. But the general thinking, we also, by the way, sorry, in this film, we have to also have a Malaysian counterpart attorney because we have an attorney here in the U.S., but that's not the only laws that apply in this instance. So we, we had an attorney in Malaysia. We also had an attorney in Vietnam. Uh, the Malaysian attorney was able to, he was well-versed in Indonesian law, too, so he helped with that. So we had to go through multiple layers of of um, review and get the, the okay to proceed from them. Of course, there's always risk involved, but um, the thinking is that CCTV isn't actually owned by someone. It's not someone's copyright. So you have a fair use argument. Again, also sort of that 
uh, in the public interest argument that you can use the footage. That's very interesting, hearing how you had to rely on uh, legal advice from from people in different countries. And it is true, the fair use laws, um, I know, are written specifically, um, at least the ones I've seen, for uh, for America. So that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you do you want to give a shout out to the attorney here in America that helped you? Yes, sure. Um, her name is Melissa Georges, and she works at Frankfurt Kernick Klein and Self. Um, and she was, I mean, she was, she has been our attorney for lots of times. She's a very staunch First Amendment advocate, and so uh, <laughs> she's always trying to help us be able to do all the things that we want to do, which are obviously very challenging many times. But I'm, I'm really really grateful to her. And then the firm um, in the firm in Malaysia is a man named Patrick Miranda. And he's amazing as well. This is my first time working with him, but he was very patient with us and working through all of this footage and all of the other legal challenges. Yeah. And um, also in this film, you make use of drawings of what's happening in the courtroom um, at different times. And I was wondering if you commissioned an artist to make those drawings because I'm assuming press was not allowed in, or if those were drawings that were created to, you know, for press use. Um, you are correct. Press was not allowed in, and so we did commission those drawings. We were not able to go in. Um, so they had a press room where you could watch um, from out, outside of the courtroom where they had a TV. I think that happens a lot in America, too, where you can sort of an overspill room, but press was not allowed in the actual room, so uh, we were able to get some audio recordings, but then we wanted to find a way to bring um, them to life. We had people who could let us know what the setup was, so we structured everything exactly as it looked inside the courtroom, um, and then we had the the faces of the characters we were able, you know, we knew as well, obviously, and so we gave a bunch of source images to an illustrator who who made those drawings. Yeah, I think this was a great way of helping to bring this part of the story to life. And um, you also use text messages in the film, and I was wondering how you got access to those. We got those through the attorneys. So that was another boon. When we, you know, when we got that CCTV footage, that was detective work and unpacking all of that. But when we got the text messages, too, that was, to me, another turning point because you know, you go into a project or any story that seems as outlandish as this one as a skeptic, right? You're like, that, that seems crazy. I don't, again, I don't know if everyone watched the film, but the women who smeared VX agent on Kim Jong-nam's face maintained their innocence because they said that they thought that they were on a reality show. They thought that they were on a prank show and that this was just a joke, and they claimed that they had no idea that what was on their hands would kill the man. Um, whom they viewed as just another actor. And so to get access to their text messages and see this unfiltered correspondence that they have with these North Korean agents was really eye-opening. They use the word actor all the time when referring to him. They talk about making the videos and about when they're going to get paid to get, you know, for those videos. All of their language, they talk about practicing. All of the language is really is actors trying to act and earn a living. And as I mentioned in the beginning, both of them didn't have a really strong support system in terms of their backgrounds. And so both of them were looking for opportunity, and this seemed like a great opportunity. You know, Sissy, one of the women who's from Indonesia, comments like, 
this seems like easy money, you know, and she was glad to be doing that. She was glad to find an opportunity and thought that maybe it could change change her life, which, of course, it did. Yeah, this is definitely one of those um, examples of um, of uh, reality being stranger than fiction. Um, yes. So at, at what point did you actually get to meet um, the women and talk to them for the first time? How how many months in were you by then? Um, we had probably been making the project for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years by then, um, something like that, which was a really interesting interesting way to make a film because I mentioned earlier that the, the lawyers became our main characters, but the women are really our main characters, but it's, I just can't really call them that because we didn't have access to them. And so you're making a film about people who you don't get to talk to, who you don't get to know face to face, who you don't get to have this interaction with. And so the way we did that, I give a ton of credit to our editor, Helen Kearns, um, not only for laying out this complicated story, uh, in a hopefully digestible way, but she's also did a great job of bringing women to life who we didn't have access to. And so the best way to do that was, of course, through those text messages, those came through again, but also through their families um, and through people that they knew and trying to have as many people speak about the women as possible since we couldn't have them speak for themselves. So it was kind of an inverted way to tell or tell a story and to make a film. You don't even meet the main characters till much later in the, in the filmmaking process. Yeah, well, I think you did a great job. And given everything that had happened, did you find it hard to gain their trust? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, of course, it just it's very suspect. You know, there's a film crew I've never met before coming to my door and saying, hey, trust us, we want to make a movie about you. It feels very familiar to what landed you in this circumstance in the first place. So, of course, as filmmakers know, in general, it's hard to, to build trust with people because it's a scary endeavor to embark on making a documentary film about yourself. But particularly if you've had a terrible experience in the past, you're not going to be eager to do this again or to do something that seems similar again. So that was, I mean, I, I guess sometimes filmmakers, this is a sort of an intentional approach would be make friends with all the people around the person you really want. But that's not that's not how we viewed it, but it's kind of what happened just because the women weren't reachable. So we were getting the families to trust us. We were getting the attorneys to trust us. And so by the time we were able to interact with the women, we had that trust and people who could say um, that we were trustworthy and also that we'd been making it for a long time because I think a lot of the sort of flash-in-the-pan news coverage kind of in and out, and that's not what we were looking for. I mean, the attorneys would say, okay, you know, we've we've hung out for half an hour. Like, I'm going to go to lunch now. Can you leave? And it's like, no, 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 we want to come to lunch. <laughs> you know, like trying to change that perspective of we're here for the long haul. We really want to cover this. And so I think that that went a long way too, just the the persistence and the longevity of, of our efforts to help them to learn to trust. But it is still hard, and I totally respect and understand that. It's a very sensitive issue. Yeah. And I, I don't want to give away the ending, but do you think the fact that you were filming had anything to do with the outcome of the story since it helped people know that the world was interested and the story was not forgotten? It's, uh, that's another great question. I mean, I it's, it's really tough to know. I mean, we certainly 
there wasn't a lot of Western coverage. There wasn't a lot of Western presence at the, the days of the trial. Um, so I do think that we were able to show that there was still Western interest. Um, you know, when we met with people and told them our plan, we didn't know where we were going to show it yet, but, you know, we were saying well, our plan is to have this out in the world and help to bring this story to light for, for all audiences, but again, for Western audience who had, audiences, many of whom had lost track of this story. So I don't know. Um, I, you never really know, right? But, uh, but it's definitely possible. And I would love it if you would talk a little bit about the extra challenges you faced filming overseas. We've heard a little bit about them already as it pertains to having used multiple lawyers in different countries. But um, I'm also wondering if you have any tips about doing a bilingual production and overcoming the language mm. barrier. Because I'm assuming that you um, – maybe I'm wrong, but I'm assuming you didn't speak <laughs> the, the various languages. No, you are correct. Yeah, so – it's definitely, I mean, a lot of our challenges are the ones that anyone faces. You know, it was two flights and almost 24 hours to get there. So in terms of drop everything, we've got this big event coming, you need to be there covered. That was difficult, you know. Thankfully, we had the attorneys who were able to, when possible, give us a heads up so that there would be time to get there. Um, language, another, This it was surprising to me, as you saw, the film parts of it are in Bahasa, parts of the trial are in um, are in English. A lot of it is done in English. Everyone speaks perfect English who we worked with in terms of sorry, everyone in like the attorney's offices. The women did not perfect English. They were both learning, but all of the attorneys did. And so those interviews could be done in English. That was a huge advantage, you know, and they were comfortable speaking that language. They do so frequently in the courtroom. Um, so we removed that, but still, uh, you know, I, so the vast majority of the film is actually in English, but of course there are parts that are not. Um, I think this is a little in the weeds and boring, but one of the things we really focused on was the subtitles, um, because it can be really distracting and difficult for people at times. And also, uh, you know, there's mistakes frequently and our Darshan, whom I mentioned before, and Oscar Vasquez, who was our assistant editor, Together, they devised this team to really be thorough in those subtitles, and we had them quadruple checked a million times for timing accuracy. But even that was challenging because there aren't a lot of people around who speak Bahasa Indonesia, Bahasa Malaysia. Um, so those languages, there's more who speak Vietnamese. We were able, more easily able to find Vietnamese translators, but those languages were both really hard. And the pe- But thankfully, the people who we found were able to help us translate, review, talk to us about a lot of the cultural influences and things like that. Not to mention, last thing I'll say is Doug. And Doug, the journalist who speaks Bahasa Indonesia, which means he can get by in Malaysia. It's not the same. Um, And I'm not a linguist. I don't know the exact differences, but he can get by in Malaysia as well. So he was a huge, huge help on the ground. He was essentially our translator on the ground. And then we got a fixer in Vietnam who could really help us navigate Vietnam as well. So I think it's, you know, similar problems to what most people face, just finding a way to bridge that language and cultural gap and just timing challenges and all of those things on top of legal ones, as we mentioned before. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of challenges, but you navigated brilliantly. So um, I'm wondering, due to the sensitive nature of the subject matter, did you ever feel that pursuing this topic was in any way risky? Yes. 
um, it's scary, right? We're talking, I mean, we're talking about a man who was killed. Um, and I know there's a lot of stories out there, true crime stories about people who were killed. And so everyone is, is, um, everyone is facing this, this risk to some extent, but we felt particularly concerned, um, not necessarily for our physical safety, although at times, but for our cyber safety, which was a different uh, challenge than, I mean, everyone's concerned about it all the time, but the, the amount to which we were just concerned was different for us on this film than anything else. Sony hacked in, I think, oh, gosh, I can't remember what year it was, but several years ago, um, North Korean agents hacked Sony and released a lot of data, caused all sorts of havoc, um, and it was seen as a rebuttal to a film. Um, or this is the, the, the theory. I don't know if it's ever actually been confirmed that that's what happened. But because that theory exists, of course, we're thinking, okay, are we putting ourselves, our company at risk by telling this story? Um, but we, <laughs> so we tried to be as careful as we could. You know, we had meetings with security experts to a degree I've never had before. Some people from the FBI, we had people advising us on how to handle all of our material. And it was a lot of added layers that we've never done before. You know, no, no computer that could access the project could also access the Internet. Um, we had a lot of hard copy paper stuff instead of digital files. There were just a lot of things that we were advised to do, all of which we took very seriously, password protection and all of those sort of low-hanging fruit, but all the way up to um, firewalls and all of those things to, to try to keep the data um, safe. But uh so far so good <laughs> yeah um this film was released during a pretty tough year given the pandemic and i was yeah. wondering how that affected your experience getting out into the world because obviously the um theatrical market largely collapsed and people shifted to doing right. online screenings and things like that did that was that something that you also had to had to navigate Yes, we have to navigate that too. We honestly feel that we're we're one of the fortunate films because we were able to have that Sundance premiere before everything locked down. You know, we had a big festival rollout planned and the rest of it got canceled, but we were we feel grateful to have had that experience cuz you know, so much of the one of the big things that we really enjoy as filmmakers is to sit down and watch your film on a big screen, right? With an audience. It's just a really a really positive experience. I mean, I guess it can be negative too, but overall it's like a nice sense of achievement to be able to do that. Um, and we were able to do that and we're grateful for that. And then yes, things um, got complicated and we had to change our plans, but we were still able to do, it took a lot longer for us to really get the plans together, you know, because things were shifting so much, but we were still able to do, uh, you know, a small theatrical, um, but really it was just an online release. But I'd like to view that, that maybe maybe people who wouldn't have seen it otherwise were able to see it. You know, maybe some people were able to see it from their couches who wouldn't have seen it in the theater. So I'm, I'm silver lining viewing it. Yeah, well, that's good. And um, since the time the film was made, I was wondering if um, there have been any new arrests or if there have been any new um, details into this story that, that you know about. Um. Well, it's interesting that the, one of the more surprising things was that one of the men, uh, one of the North Korean agents who uh, was involved and is on camera in our footage multiple times, um, 
you know, uh, as I mentioned, the, the operatives left and went back to North Korea, and he specifically was seen at a karaoke bar. Um, there's footage of him, I believe, the karaoke bar was in China. He was no longer in North Korea at the time. But it's just one of those things that it just was so um, shocking to see, to see someone just out and in public and having fun and seemingly not impacted by what his alleged role was in all of this. And then to think about the women and, and the challenges that they faced and are continuing to face. Um, so that was one of the updates, but there haven't been, there have not been arrests. Um, as far as, to my understanding, all of the operatives are still out. I had thought they were in North Korea, but perhaps they're not. At least this one was in um, China and they may be elsewhere. I'm not really sure of their whereabouts, and I don't know if we'll ever know. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Lately, true crime has become very trendy in documentary, and I wonder if you have any comments about the reasons for that. I don't really know what it is about true crime that people just can't stop watching. I I don't really know. I mean, there's a cynical part of me that would give one answer, but there's also the part of me that has seen that some people are really motivated to try to, a lot of armchair detectives really motivated to try to help when in cases that are unsolved. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is that motivates people. The way that I look at it, though, for me and my work is that true crime, from the way I look back at it, maybe I'm wrong, but with one of the uh, avenues to get, documentary more into the mainstream you know this in particular series documentary series like the first few big documentary series that really broke through and became water cooler talk were true crime series those were making a murderer the jeans i'd like to think that our series the keepers was a bit of a follow-up to that um where it wasn't just a documentary air quotes audience who are watching these series it was a, a wide audience. And I remember thinking right after making a murderer, oh my gosh, people will watch 10 hours of documentary. That's amazing, you know, and since they've continued to do so. And it's not just true crime. You're right that true crime is the front runner and, and probably series, but maybe even feature in terms of what gets like the most talked about and um, sort of buzz, buzzy attention. But but it's brought with it a lot of other documentary films that have become more um, more viewed and more a part of, of the culture, which is I think is great in many ways. I'm sure you know there's also some challenges that the community and that the um, field face because of the popularity. But I think in general, I'm grateful that people, more and more people, are watching the work of my community. Yeah, well, these are definitely high stakes stories when you're dealing with things like life and death and whether someone's going to jail or not going to jail, these kinds of things. Um, When did you become interested in documentary film and what made you decide to focus on being a producer? Um, I had sort of a circuitous path. Growing up, I just never really entertained the idea of a career in the arts. I, I don't know why. It just seemed sort of otherworldly to me and not like something I would ever do. Uh, but in school, I, I wanted to do everything. Like I was very interested in a lot of subjects. I took way more classes in college than I needed to graduate just because there were so many I wanted to take. It's like 
giant nerd here, but I realized the documentary film, to some extent, is like a continuing education for me. Like right now I'm making a project about a Mars rover. I didn't know that much about Mars before, but now it feels like I'm taking a you know two-year-long Mar- course on Mars, and I'm reading books, and I'm talking about it, and I'm learning all these things about it that I didn't know before. And as we're discussing, you know, a, a year ago, I was doing the same thing about North Korea. So to me, it's really been a blessing to be able to have so many different um, areas to focus on and to learn about. And then I'm always challenged and I'm always interested because then I move on to something else and I learn about that. So I didn't entertain this as an the idea of this as a career for a long time because I didn't really understand that I could do it. Ian, I kept a lot of jobs, day jobs, until I was finally able to get myself, my feet under myself for this one. So I was interested in it. I loved the concept of it. I was scared to do it. And it took me a while to fully commit to it because it just didn't, it seemed so scary. And I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to to succeed at it. Well, it seems like you've found your calling. Um, Have... um... (laughs) You you have a director you work with regularly, and I was wondering how the two of you decide what what to make and what you're going to work on next. Um, Ryan, it's it's funny. I should have brought him up in my last answer. Ryan White, my partner in at my company, who's the director that I work with, and I produce all his films. He directs the films that we do together. Uh, he and I grew up together, and he knew for a long time. We, we've been best friends since we were 10, and he knew for a long time he wanted to work in film. Um, and so he's a large influence on me, too, in terms of helping me to believe in myself and to take that leap and to finally quit that day job. Um, and so I bring that up, the history, because we have, at this point, a 30-year history, and so um, we're able to have... I don't, I, I'm trying to identify it correctly because we don't agree on everything and we shouldn't agree on everything <laughs> and we don't have the same taste in everything either. So it's not like both of us every single time agree this seems like the perfect project I want to do it. Sometimes we see value in different aspects of a project, but the way that we decide is normally to just start shooting something and is once if someone brings an idea to us or we have an idea, um, then we start doing the research, we start doing the shooting if possible, and we just see if we're really compelled by it. We're not that big a company, so we're very involved in all of our projects, and we both have to want to wake up every day and work on something in order to do it. Am I driven to read that book? Am I driven to make that phone call? Uh, if not, then I don't, I'm not going to be able to sustain this for a year and a half or two years, and maybe no one else will be interested either. So it's it's really figuring out whether... The, the two of us can dedicate the time and energy that it takes to make a film, but also if we think that the story will have some sort of impact or would bring some sort of light to something that's lesser known and that other people would, would learn something from it too. What advice would you give to a young filmmaker who wants to, uh, or, or a young person who wants to pursue documentary film? Um. I want to give something practical because I think that I would, of course, say, like, don't get discouraged, follow your dreams, like all of those things. But I thought people have probably heard those things before. I 100% believe those things, you know, uh, and they're true. And it's hard to hear them and hard to do them. But practically, this is a very basic thing. 
learn how to shoot. I think that every tackle maker should learn how to shoot. I do not know how to shoot, and that's why I bring that up. I wish that I had taken some camera courses when I was young and spry, but I'm 40 now. I have two little kids. I'm working on a lot of projects. The odds of me going to camis and, you know, taking a week-long course on the T300 are low. But I should have done it when I was younger because it makes – it would make not only my understanding that much greater, um, and I'm learning as I can, but it's just not the same, but it would also just make me more um, useful as a filmmaker, you know? Sometimes we shoot things and there's only one or two person, people in the room. A lot of times we do that. A lot of times other doc filmmakers do that. I wish I could be that one person in the room sometimes. I'm always the second because I can't shoot, and I wish that I could, and I don't know that I'll ever be able to do that. <laughs> at this point well, in the game. So it's just a practical piece. <laughs> yeah, that's very practical advice. Would you like to talk a little bit about what you're working on now? Sure. Um, so the, the project that we're focused on, we very rarely announce projects before they are done. So this is a new experience for me to be able to talk about this Mars project, and I'm excited about it. Um, we're telling the story of a rover who was supposed to live for 90 days and live for 15 years. And she's, there were two rovers. One lasted as long as 15 years. Their names were Opportunity and Spirit, and they were sent to Mars in 2003, landed in 2004, and way, <laughs> way outlived everyone's expectations. So it's about the rovers, but it's also very much about the connection between human and mission um, because we're focused on the team at NASA who – had this idea, um, who executed this idea, and then who um, forged this bond with something that was living millions of miles away, a robot that was living, and not living, I use loosely, millions of miles away, but who really began uh, to feel like a part of, of who they were and a part of their family. That's interesting. Oh, and Is it's going to be on Amazon. Sorry. <laughs> I should plug oh, that too. Oh. It's going to be on Amazon sometime next year. Go ahead. <laughs> Did you say the title already? If not, do you want to tell us the title? Uh, the working so the working title is Goodnight Oppie, Oppie being the nickname for the Opportunity Rover. I see. And is there anything else you would like to tell us that I didn't ask you about already? Um, the only other thing I would add that I was just thinking about practical advice is uh, if you if you're wanting to to work for a company or interested in working with a company reach out to them. I feel like it's not, uh, I don't know, I, I'm not very confident. I'm not very assertive. I've gotten more so in my age, but I never would have done that. I never would have just sent a cold email to a company and said, hey, I like your work. I'm interested in working for you. Let me know if you have a job. Here's my resume. But I get those emails, and I think that they're, they're positive, and it's a good idea. And we have hired people from just an outreach from, you know, here's my resume, here's my experience, let's get on the phone. So if anyone is thinking about doing that, I would encourage them to do so. Well, that's good advice, too. Would you like mm -hmm. to share your website and your social handles with us so people know where to find you? Sure. Um, our website, so my company is Tripod Media. The website is www.tripod-media.com. Um, I can't remember. I have Instagram and Twitter. One of them is Jessica L. Hargrave, and one of them is Jess L. Hargrave, L being my middle name. I can't remember which is which, but <laughs> but you can. I'm sure it's not too hard to find. 
Well, thank you so much, and thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here and talk about your film and share your great advice with everyone. And um, thank, thank Claire so for, for having me. Yeah, thanks, Claire, for handling all the tech side of this. Sure, happy to. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Jessica. Thank you, Heather and Claire. I appreciate it. All right. All right. Thanks. Okay, take care. Bye. All right. Be well, everyone. Bye-bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice. Fair use successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.